Throughout the years, I feel like when I start to ask people to share a little bit about the gospel and what the gospel means, uh, to tell me the story about Jesus or, or God and how that interacts, a lot of times where they start the story is that we have sinned and fallen short and that um, we have, have uh, kind of this broken Imago Dei on us. Uh, and for me, you're already starting on the wrong foot when you start there. Uh, because there's a couple chapters in Genesis before that uh, happens. And, and what we're told is that God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all the land and the sea, the animals. Um, and then he creates humankind. And he calls everything else good. And then when he creates humanity, he says they are very good. Uh, and, I, and I think that's where we always have to start that we are very good, that our image, our Imago Dei that's on us is good and it does not start from a broken place. Um, I think it's fundamental in the way we view ourselves. I think it's fundamental in the way that we view others, that we start with a, a holistic image of God on each person and not a broken image. Um, I, I bring that up just because we're going to dive in a little bit to these, these two uh, people, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and I think it's very easy to start um, slotting one in a category and another uh, in a different category, and we lose some humanity in that as well. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what it's called, and I'm not going to try, but in um, the Japanese culture, there's an art of pottery that when pottery breaks and they put it back together, they highlight that mark with a, with a gold, the glue, that's, the lacquer that's used to put it back together, um, and it, it has gold in it, and it shines in where that break would have been. Um, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on, but I think it's fascinating because a lot of our culture likes to hide those marks, uh, to act like they were never there, uh, even on us sometimes, to act like we have no faults, that maybe we uh, present one way in the world and hide what really is going on um, behind us. And so as I was wrestling with this scripture, I was thinking about what is the default view of myself that I have of me? Not that anybody else has of me, not that um, we can talk about that later on, right? Um, but, but where do I start with my view of self? And is it in this idea of me being perfectly and wonderfully made? Or is it in me having faults and trying to hide them and disguise them? and keep them hidden from others so that I can present as something that is uh, where those faults are, are hidden and disguised, where I can come across as this perfect uh, person, which is not true for any of us. Um, and, and so as we walk through this passage, I want us just to keep that um, question in mind of how we view these two, these two people, these two characters, what it is they have to teach us, and maybe how we can view them as, as whole people. Um, so we, we enter into this passage, and, and Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he's teaching in parables. And we always know parables are these stories that are used to teach us something. Um, a lot of times when we have parables, it's like um, this, the kingdom of God is like. We're trying to understand something that we can't quite wrap our mind around. Um, and so Jesus is trying to teach this crowd something um, as they gather together and view themselves as righteous and with others with with contempt. And so we have, on one hand, this Pharisee that comes to pray. Um, and the Pharisee, uh, in general, the Pharisees tend to get a bad rap. Uh, they were religious leaders at the time, uh, and, and they were trying to live into the letter of the law. 
The law had been given to them. They wanted to live it out fully. Uh, I tend to believe Pharisees were probably firstborn children like myself. You know, we, we have that set of rules and we're going to live into them, maybe until the rules aren't fair or just. But the majority of the time, we're going to try to check off all those boxes. Uh, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. So just like, you know, maybe that's something I need to work through. I don't know. But like um, uh, the Pharisees are trying to live into the letter of the law. It has been given down for generations upon generations of faith. And so they're, they're trying to live into it the best that they know how. Uh, and, you know, bless this Pharisee, he comes up um, trying to live into this and, and maybe misses the heart a little bit when he's saying, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like these other people. Um, but he, he's trying, right? And then you have this tax collector. And tax collectors were not viewed favorably in society either, right? Tax collectors tended to get a rap. They were, you know, I feel like even for us, we probably all don't love taxes um, and the time that they get collected for whatever reason, right? Right. Uh, there was known corruption that happened with the majority of tax collectors uh, where they were taking above and beyond what was really required and pocketing some profits um, that were happening there. We don't, we don't really know his full story, um, but we know that he is coming forward and he has a prayer that's more about um, beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, uh, a sinner. And so the tax collector most likely is a perpetrator of some very real sins um, in his life, and they're a little bit more hidden. The Pharisee, when we, when we encounter him, it's a little more apparent that maybe we have some hypocrisy going on, some pride going on. Um, the tax collector has something going on as well, but is, is looking down, is pouring out his heart and asking for forgiveness. So it's a different kind of um, even physical <clears throat> gathering where the Pharisee maybe was more like, look at me, I'm awesome. Thanks for making me not like these other people. I'm doing great in my faith, which we all probably have sometimes. Uh, and the, the tax collector is more looking down, more humbled, more um, grievous of these sins that are, that are present. But, but both men are at the temple, and I don't want us to lose that. Both men have traveled to this place and are engaging in prayer with God. They are uh, interacting in a way. Um, and I think it's interesting because as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about different psalms and how depending on what psalm you're reading, it, comes, it can come across in different ways. So for the Pharisee, um, I was thinking about Psalm 17. And, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this maybe lines up a little bit with the Pharisee's words, even though at first we uh, did not really appreciate his prayer. Uh, but Psalm 17 says, if you try my heart, if you visit me by night, if you test me, you will find no wickedness in me. My mouth does not transgress. As for what others do, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. So this Pharisee, right, even in the words of this psalm, are saying, I have held true to your ways. I have followed the rules. I am not an adulterer. I am not finding these violent aspects of life. And so there's a case to be made for the Pharisee even being able to use scripture here and connecting with God, trying to seek after the Lord, um, even though we may say it's a little bit misguided. The tax collector maybe is a little bit more like Psalm 51, which we frequently encounter um, on Ash Wednesday, right? This idea of have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This prayer from David after he has been caught in adultery, right? Um, and, and his pouring out is in this, this humbling state. I think that both are really important for our life. Um, 
I, and again, maybe that's rooted in me being uh, like a firstborn rule follower type person. The law is really important. The law gives us guidelines. Uh, it teaches us what it means to be people of God, to be set apart from the beginning. Uh, remember that when um, God is first interacting with the Hebrew people, uh, with the Israelites, there were a lot of other gods that were being worshipped. And they would worship to whatever God they needed in that season and in that time. If they needed a fruitful harvest, they would pray to a specific God so that they could have that fruitful harvest. If they were struggling with stuff in the home, they would struggle to a different God so that they could have children. So they would pray to a different God so that they could uh, work out their strife, whatever it was. They would choose the God for the fitting of whatever situation or scenario they were in. And so when, when the Israelites are being formed and God is walking alongside them and laying out these commandments, he's saying, this is what it means to be my people. This is what it means to be set apart. This is what it means to be holy and part of the, the I am, to believe in the God of Jacob and Abraham, right? It, it looks like this. And so the law gives us uh, boundaries on how to engage with society, how to engage with one another, and how to represent God. So the law is not fully bad. I think also the law maybe points to how we can't do that all on our own, that we can't um, work ourselves into grace, that we cannot live a perfect life in that way. And that's where I think the tax collector represents this beautiful image of, of grace and mercy. And that we need, we need both of these tensions in our life. That we need, we need the law to help us know how to repent, what we need to change in our life, what's going wrong. And we need to fully understand grace and that it's a gift freely given. And we have to bounce back and forth. We can't just live in a camp that continues to come back and say, hey, I'm sorry for that thing I did yesterday. Oh, and it's the same thing I did the day before that. And the same thing I did, and I'm not actually changing anything, but I'm just going to keep coming and saying I'm sorry for the same thing over and over while knowing intentionally that I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again. The law helps us repent and change behavior. And grace actually gives us the freedom to be able to do that to move forward in a way that's not based in shame, um, but continuing forward. So both men enter into this temple, temple seeking justification. They want to be made right with God um, or before God. They want to be living into um, right lives. Um, the tax collector is justified. We see that in the passage um, because he recognizes his sin, we hope, uh, and he's relying on God's grace for that. The Pharisee, uh, maybe not as easy to see him living into grace as he's comparing himself to others and saying that he's not as bad as that guy over there. Um, but hopefully, right, something can happen at the temple. Uh, we don't really know at the end of the day um, how that lifts or how that plays out. Um, the, the Pharisee is lifting himself up, and I think it's while he's lifting himself up and maybe exalting himself, um, the tax collector is lowered down um, and, and humbling. And there may be a lesson there in that the higher we exalt ourselves, the, the further we have to fall um, until we get it. Um, but, but they're both seeking this, this justification. And justification is based in love, not perfection or pride. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, I am a, a firstborn perfectionist. And that's really hard for me to not be able to, to work it out myself 
to not be able to check off the box in enough ways, to not say, okay, I'm just gonna put in this practice and putting in this practice is gonna solve all the things. Um, having a six month old child, I, uh, I, I, I can't be perfect and do it all. Um, and he does not always want to follow my schedule and my routine um, <laughs> as much as I would like him to. Uh, and so, so there's this reality, right, of, of understanding grace in a whole new way through Timothy um, because I constantly, I don't do well, Trevor can tell you this, but I have to give myself grace uh, in the midst of it when things aren't going the way I want. And I'm constantly giving him grace and there is no other way that I would want to do that. No part of me would want to withhold that grace for him. No part of me expects a six month old <laughs> to be living into some kind of real uh, perfection uh, that's just unattainable and based on, I don't, I don't know what, some imagined idea of what uh, six month olds are supposed to act like. Um, and so if, if that's my limited view of grace as a parent, how much more so is that true for God towards me? This idea of grace fully accepting me for who I am, that I am good, <laughs> that that is the root identity for me. Uh, and why would I think that God is withholding that from me? Why would I think that God has anything less for me than that grace that is freely given? Uh, but how hard it is for me to wrap my mind around that, to accept that, to understand that. Um, I think that it's really, this passage for me is about love of self and love of neighbor. Neighbor, How is it that we're interacting with God and what does that change um, for us and about us? Um, it's not based on, on pride um, or these things. We, we need both. I was thinking about this idea of, of radical grace and when we, interact with radical grace, um, we can't help but change uh, within us and in the way that we treat others. Um, and I have some stories I'll share in a minute, but I'm sure that you've had moments in your life where you've interacted with grace in such a way uh, that you are a changed, marked person because of the way that God interacted with you in that moment. And that looks different for each of us um, and all of us. And your story is not negated because somebody else's story looks different or is bigger or a different kind of testimony. Um, your story is your story. Uh, and God has interacted with you in a significant way. Um, and that has altered you and alters the way that you treat others. I have this quote from Marjorie Proctor Smith about this, this parable. And it says, this parable is interested only uh, in his trust in God's mercy. If a tax collector can find mercy before God, then who is excluded? I think this goes back to tax collectors were on this fringe of society. They were looked down upon because of their job, uh, because they did perhaps take advantage uh, and gain extra profit. And so if somebody who's that marginalized on society can be fully accepted by God, then who can be excluded from that? And who are we to exclude anybody from that? And one of my questions for you would be, um, maybe who is it that you, by default of how we're raised, how we view the world through no fault of your own, who is it that we view as not included? That maybe um, isn't worthy and not that we would ever put those words out there that way, but how are we treating people in such a way that maybe we're not offering that grace um, freely given to, to them? Um, two things stand out to me about the Pharisee, uh, and maybe it's because I, I relate greatly to him, uh, but it, it's this problem with pride 
um, this view of, of the greatest sin of I have it all figured out and thank the Lord uh, that I am not as messed up as X or as whatever, right? Insert the comparison here that I have in my life. Thanks for letting me have it altogether, which I definitely do not, and neither does this, this Pharisee. Um, but I think what happens is he's confusing who has done the good deeds. I think the Pharisee is confusing this act of fasting and of giving and of um, giving back to the church and others as something that he is do doing in and of himself, as opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit or what God is doing or the grace that has been given to him. Uh, and he, he is uh, taking claim for that, which we can all get caught up on a little bit. Um, but it starts to place ourselves above others and perhaps even above God uh, in different moments. The, the second thing when I talk about the Pharisee is this perception of others, um, as I talked to you a minute ago, but I think also how we view ourselves. If I'm caught in the Pharisee mindset, um, I cannot show you the broken edges of my pottery that have been put back together. I'm not going to highlight those in gold. I'm going to make sure that I can put those pieces back together as closely as I can with glue that is as clear as possible uh, and maybe some paint so I can cover it up and you don't know that that break has ever happened. And I'm going to keep restitching things together. I'm going to keep covering that up until maybe nothing is left of the original to where you can't see any of that. Uh, because in that mindset, I am not willing... <laughs> I do not have humility in that moment. I do not have grace for myself to admit any of those breaks, let alone celebrate them with highlighting of gold. I don't want anybody to know that I can mess up at all. I want to make sure everybody thinks that I am perfect. I mean the Pharisee. That's what the Pharisee is thinking, that he's perfect. Uh, you, you have to have this... Um, this grace, and you, have, you can only accept it. You can't work your way into it. Uh, you have to, it's a freely given gift. And so many of us, uh, Pharisees, try to earn it to make sure that we think we're worthy of it. And I think it's rooted back in that understanding of humanity from the very beginning. And do I view myself as somebody who is worthy, who is made in the image of God, who is called very good, or do I start my identity with something that is broken and that is not good and that has to be uh, worked out and put back together uh, as opposed to that, that whole uh, vision? Um, the Pharisee is, is in the act of condemning the sinning of the other man uh, and cannot perceive grace on his own. Um, and the Pharisee somehow thinks that he has earned this grace when really it's freely and joyfully given to all. There are other uh, parables in scripture that talk about this idea. Um, the parable of the talons would be one of them. Um, or, or when uh, he talks about the, the landowner hiring workers and some of them come in um, and he says, okay, if you work for today, I'm gonna give you X amount of coins. And then somebody starts at noon and, and the land work owner says, okay, if you work, I'm going to give you the same amount of coins. And then uh, people come in at the last hour and the landowner says, if you work, I'm still going to give you the same amount of coins. And the people that have been working all day are like, hold up. <laughs> 
I, uh, I thought that we had negotiated a rate here, and then you kept giving that same rate, even though they worked less hours and less amount of time. Um, grace is freely given to all, and it doesn't matter uh, at what point you have received that grace. Uh, it doesn't matter how late you receive that grace. That grace is freely given, and it's a gift for every single person. And we should joyfully celebrate that grace given to all. Um, and the way that God interacts and moves in every single person and what their story um, is. The assumption uh, that we have in this story is that the tax collector receives grace and the Pharisee doesn't. Um, and, and that's laid out a little bit. I don't know. I, th I think it, I was talking to Trevor a little bit about this. I think my hope is that, that for both of them, they're in the temple and that they have an invitation to receive God's grace they have an invitation to interact with God and that they would both leave that temple different people. I think we have the same invitation anytime that we gather together, anytime we're entering into any kind of sacred space, which I'm a big fan of sacred space does not just mean the walls of the church. Um, I have had uh, sacred and holy moments when I am at the end of a hike. Uh, one, that I survived, thank you, Lord. And two, the view is often like breathtaking. Uh, we, I went to the Grand Canyon, um, gosh, now it's been several years ago, um, and it was covered in snow. There was like three feet of snow at the top, and we uh, rode in the night before in the dark, the stars everywhere, um, went into the, the hotel. We came out the next morning, and like seeing the sunrise over that was absolutely a sacred and holy moment. Right? I think anytime we have have these sacred and holy moments, we are invited to receive God's grace in a way that, that can change us forever. Uh, and there, there's a lot of those invitations. I don't think it's a one and done. I, I, and I don't think if you miss it that that was your only opportunity because um, I, I know for sure I have missed it at points in my life. Um, but there are other times that I've said yes to that invitation. And that radical grace has changed me in the way that I view others. Um, I think that this story is about discipleship and that discipleship is seeing others as beloved children as, of God, as people who also have this imago Dei, the image of God on them, um, and balancing this, this love of God and love of others in the way that we interact. Um, radical grace will absolutely change you and how you interact with other people. The other thing that, that this story... Um, stirred up in me um, is, is this question of if we're afraid to talk about sin. Um, when I talk about this idea of, of things being perfect or highlighting maybe the uh, mistake in the pottery, um, how is it that we're able to share uh, where we have um, not had it all together? And as church people, do we think that we're supposed to have it all together and that we have to present that way all the time. Um, a good example of this, and I'm sure many of you have seen it, is the, the Instagram photos versus the, the reality. Um, and some people on social media are, are allowing that peek behind the scenes a little more. Um, but I'm, I'm sure, especially again, now that I have a six month old, um, I understand much more so the reality of family photos. Um, this, this image that looks like everybody is smiling and happy and has it all together and like, look at us in coordinating outfits and we nailed it. Uh, and the battle that absolutely happened to get to that point, right? 
uh, the battle over what we're going to wear, the stress that happened, um, the cost that goes into family photos, uh, making sure everybody is smiling um, and looking at the camera at the same time. Uh, we went to Disney a couple weeks ago, and I had <laughs> I just, you know, uh, bless me. I had this idea of these pictures that I wanted to happen while we were at Disney World. And poor Trevor, because I, <laughs> I was like, I have this outfit for Timothy, and I want him to be wearing it. And this is like, here's my photo on my phone that's my inspiration of what I want. Uh, and it did not happen at all that way. Um, yeah, one of my favorite photos actually from the trip is Timothy fighting us, and he is crying, bless his heart. And I have these mouse ears on him, and Trevor and I are on either side kissing his cheeks, and Timothy hates everything about it. But, um, but, but this reality of this is the way I'm presenting, and here's what, what's actually going on. Um, and I'm going to make sure this stays behind the scenes and that nobody sees it so that, that there's this picture-perfect image of, uh, of my life or whatever, right? Um, and, and our faith is the same way. I'm going to dust all of the, the sin and the crud that I don't want anybody to see before they come over under the rug, and we're going to ignore the mound that everybody's going to have to step over so that I can present this, this picture of how we have it all together, and I just wonder what it would look like um, if, if members of, as a body, as a community, as what we're trying to build here, if we were able to just share that junk with each other. If we were just able to say, hey, I messed up this week and this is how, or today, or three minutes ago, or whatever it is. Um, I, I think as a culture, uh, we're really great at pointing out other people's big moral failings. Uh, and, and I don't want to say we celebrate them, but I, I do think that the attention that we give them maybe borderlines that. Um, but what happens when that's in our own community, when that's in our lives, and how have we dealt with all the sin before that to maybe create a space where when that one happens, this person still knows that they are welcome, that they are safe, that there is no shame, that there is no judgment, that they can walk back into a place that's supposed to be about radical grace and still be welcomed and loved because we know that they are absolutely made in the image of God, that they are absolutely worthy and whole and loved and not defined by this one moment in their life or several moments, whatever it is. When I was in student ministry. Uh, we went to choir camp every summer. Um, I, I do not sing, so I don't know why I was at choir camp. Uh, outside of, it was a powerful week for relationships with our, with our kiddos. Um, and on Wednesday night at choir camp, if you haven't been, um, we have a night of communion. And so uh, we have been living together in community since Saturday or Sunday, depending on when you went to camp. Um, and I don't know if y'all know, but teenagers and adults, when you've been living in close proximity with people for several days, can maybe not treat each other the best, have some words with one another that aren't really great. Um, when you're working with the seniors and they're building up to their senior night, you're up until 3 a.m. every night and then getting up at 6 to start the day. Um, it, it just creates some tension a little bit. We'll just say it that way. Um, and so on Wednesday night, we have this night, this big games, and then we come together for worship, um, and we celebrate communion together. And our seniors serve communion to the rest of camp. 
Um, but before we get to that, um, y'all know when we're in service and we have this moment before communion where we pray for the forgiveness of our sins and we move real quick over it, you know, we're like, okay, everybody take a minute, think about your sin. Okay. You're forgiven and I'm forgiven. And we don't really pause and reflect on it very long. Hopefully you're doing that work more so outside of just that one moment. But, um, at camp, we draw that moment out, um, because we know that there are real wounds that we've inflicted on each other living together. And so when we get to that point in our liturgy, we pause and we say, we're gonna live into this as people of reconciliation, as people who who are part of the same body, and we want you to go apologize to somebody for the way that you've treated them. And know that when you extend that apology, they may not be ready to say you're forgiven. They may say, I hear you and I need more time. They may say, thank you so much and y'all can engage in reconciliation together and y'all can move forward. Um, But it's this amazing time for me because we have incoming seventh through 12th graders and these adults really engaging in the act of naming their sin before one another and saying, I'm sorry that I, uh, whatever the excuse, I was tired, I was short-tempered, those can be real, but I still said something I shouldn't have said. I still acted in a way that I shouldn't have acted. My pride got caught up, my exhaustion, my whatever, and I'm sorry that I said those things, did those things, whatever it is. And I just wonder if we were able to capture that and really live into it as a community, what would church mean then? If, if this place, just the crossing, if we were able to actually share what's going on in our lives, where the brokenness is, um, where we're not always sin-related, just where we're struggling, where we need help, where we need somebody to come alongside us, what kind of community would this space look like? And then how does us experiencing that kind of radical grace not only change the people in this room, but change the way we're treating people outside of this place, change what it means to be a part of Chapelwood, change what it means to be a a part of Christianity as a whole, and what witness and testimony does that give to the world about God's radical grace? To say there's this group of people (laughs) that freely admit what's going on uh, and continue to walk alongside each other to celebrate one another uh, and to see worth and value and goodness and to not limit each other by when somebody has that, that mess up or that, that sin, that they're no longer part of a body, which we would never say out loud, but maybe our actions sometimes speak louder than those words uh, in the way that we, we treat people. I just get caught on this idea of if our lives were uh, lived based in love and grace and not shame, um, what does that communicate to others and what kind of community does that, that create? I talked about this Japanese pottery and the, the philosophy that's behind it. What they say is, as a philosophy, this, this type of pottery treats breakage and repair as a part of their history of an object rather than something to disguise. And if, if we were to look at our struggles, our sin, our insert whatever, it, as something that's, that's a history as opposed to something we need to cover up, how does that also change the way I view myself? 
How does that change the way that I talk about myself, not as a, as a broken, but as a, a whole, as something that's created in the image of God? And how does that just change just for me, not even for this class, y'all? Now I'm just preaching to myself. Like, how does that change the way that I interact with myself, the kind of language that happens in my head towards myself, the kind of language that happens, um, the way that I treat other people in my household, the way that I treat other people in my day-to-day interactions, just by me shifting and highlighting and celebrating and recognizing those um, breaking points, struggles, whatever, as, as just a part of my history and a growth moment. And not as something to be shamed of um, that I didn't get right the first time. You know, it's a double-edged sword that my husband is here because I feel like later when I'm struggling, he's going to be like, hey, remember that pottery? <laughs> I just, y'all, what if, what if that's how we spoke to one another? If we said, hey, remember that, that we're celebrating, we're not disguising. Remember that you are a value wholly for, for you and not who you are working to become, not who you think you need to become, not something you're earning, just you. Beautiful, amazing you. You are good, and you are loved, and you are celebrated. And and we're going to celebrate that together. Um, What would it look like if we trusted that and lived into that? It goes back to, I think, this idea of what Matt has been sharing a little bit of this second stage of faith. You know, um, when we're when we're children, the way that our brain develops, um, everything is black and white. It's right or wrong, it's good or bad, it's, it's a very divided thing, and that's just, a, it's developmentally appropriate for children. Um, as we grow, uh, our brain starts to be able to think in abstract ways. So things aren't as black and white, there's this gray area in the middle. Um, there's this, this intent, and I just wonder sometimes if our faith is stuck in the black and white view, instead of celebrating this gray and saying we're working it out, we're figuring it out together. Um, And if that's maybe part of what Matt has talked about in this next stage of our faith, is that that as we grow, as we develop in that, as we're invited into our own radical grace, we understand um, that things aren't as clear cut. That, that God's grace is working in each of us in unique ways, and we're all on our own path and journey and working towards that. And that we have the law as this, um, these guideposts, these guidelines along the way, but mixed into that is this beautiful understanding of grace that is freely given. And we're not working to earn anything. We're celebrating what God has done, and we're allowing that to transform us and then transform the way that we, we treat others. Yeah, I just wonder what our community would look like um, in that. I have the, these questions. I just want to read one of them um, to y'all, and then I'll, I'll close. Um, but but it, the idea is that humanity is constantly trying to order ourselves regarding power and worth. And the challenge of the gospel is that all people are beloved, and that challenge is lived out in community and in the kingdom of heaven. In what ways are we humbling and exalting others or ourselves in appropriate ways? Um, How are we extending grace to one another in a way that is humbling for us and exalting of others? Um, Not in a way that 
degrades or puts ourselves down and says that we're not worthy or we're not good enough, but in a way that says, I know that God is working in me, that I have this beautiful image of God on me, that I am worthy, and I want to lift up these other people. I want to make sure that they understand the grace that has been given, the radical love of God, and make sure that they know, too, that they are worthy and perfect and good in God's sight. And what does living that way do to change our world, our community, our individual lives? I'm going to pray as we close. God, I thank you so much uh, for this morning for the story of uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector and the ways that maybe we can find ourselves in both uh, images. I pray that as we leave this place, we would uh, really, I don't, I don't know, see, accept, live into uh, the grace that has been freely given, Lord, uh, that we would allow it to transform us, that we would leave this place transformed people, uh, that we would extend the grace that you have given to each of us uh, to others. Lord, I pray for a spirit of vulnerability, that we might be able to share what's really going on, uh, maybe not to a room full of people, uh, but Lord, to, to our friends sitting next to us in this room, to give them a peek behind the curtain and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with, and I don't know what way to go. Maybe to say, uh, here's the sin, and I, I don't know uh, how to repent of it. I don't know how to change behavior. I'm, I'm caught in this cycle. Um, Maybe just to say, I, I'm, I'm just feeling um, lost or, or feeling this not worthy. Lord, help us to, to speak those truths and help us to hear from others and to speak back the grace that you have given to us to them. Help us to love one another, to celebrate, um, celebrate how you have worked in each of our lives, to not hide or disguise those, uh, but to paint it with gold and say, here's how God showed up and changed me. Lord, help us all change the world for the better. It's in your name I pray. Amen.